Once Upon It's Dawn, the podcast that explores the lives and works of 18th, 19th and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. This week, we are discussing Mary Wollstonecraft. Now, Hannah, I just have one question for you. This entire episode, just one question. (laughs) So great. Do you know anything about Mary? Did you ever learn about Mary in school? No. <laughs> wow. No. Wow. Did not. In fact, uh, I think that I first heard about Mary Wollstonecraft recording this show with you, Lauren. Wow. All right. Okay. Also, I'm... I bought a copy of that book. I lent it to someone. I wow. <laughs> My goodness. I'm suddenly feeling a lot of responsibility. So. Tell me, tell me about Mary Wollstonecraft, Lauren. Oh, I'm my God. <laughs> I hope I get this right. Okay, so um, I didn't really learn about Mary in depth. I will say this. Um, one of my college professors covered vindication in class, but it was very much a feminist footnote. It was like, okay, for this one session, right? Yeah, we are going to like read through these bits of vindication we're going to just like chat about it and um, yeah, then we're going to move on to like six weeks of John Steinbeck. How about that? <laughs> yeah, like no context, no right. like historical placement or... No, okay. no, no, no. Um, which is really sad because her life is really, really fascinating. So last year, as an older and wiser Lauren, but not by much... Um, I read Romantic Outlaws, which I think is the book that you're talking about. Great book. Get it back from whoever you lent it to. No, I, no, I lent them Vindication of the Rights of Women. Oh, wow. I got, I have it back. It's next to my okay, bed. Okay, good. I just... Well, get on that one. I haven't read it. <laughs> I'm meaning to. I've, re- I've just started reading Juliet Barker's The Bronzes. That thing is massive. Oh, that's going to take you the next six months. So. I'll read that in like 2021, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Too much reading on this show. Anyway, I do highly recommend Romantic Outlaws. Um, It's the dual biography of Mary Wollstonecraft and her daughter, Mary Shelley. We'll talk about her later. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. There you go. I know who that is. (laughs) You get a gold star. So I'm going to give you guys a few quick notes on Mary before we dive into our interview with Wollstonecraft expert Roberta Wedge. Hopefully, um, I won't mess this up too badly. I'm sure Roberta's going to just be shaking her head like, no, 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 no. But anyway, (laughs) Mary Wollstonecraft, born in 1759. Now, for reference, uh, Frances Burney from last week, 1752 is her birth date. And Jane Austen was born in 1775. Charlotte Bronte all the way in 1816. So... I will say that a lot of the gals that we do cover on the show, like Jane, like Charlotte, uh, they were actually reading Wollstonecraft. So keep that one in mind. Mary was the second of seven children. Her father uh, had a bit of money, but uh, gambled and drank it away. He was an abusive alcoholic. As a child, Mary used to sleep outside of her mother's door and try to uh, actually stop him from beating her mother. Oh, my gosh. I know. So she had a pretty rough childhood and unlike many of the gals that we cover she didn't have the you know supportive family that sort of you know encouraged her to read and to write she actually like would go to like friends houses and like read from their libraries so i know like matilda 
like Matilda. Sad face. Um, in 1778, she left home to become a lady's companion to a widow named Sarah who lived in Bath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Bath um, is like the new Harriet Beecher Stowe, I think. On the season of uh, Bonnets of Dawn, like just take a shot. Or if you're if you're making a Bonnets bingo, like please make a square for Bath and Harriet Beecher Stowe. Lauren, do you want to hear a riddle? Yeah. What's the difference between Bath and Harriet Beecher Stowe? What? When you say Bath, I know what the f- you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that was good, right? That was perfect. I just made that up. You should make a whole book of of riddles. (laughs) All with that, all with that format. (laughs) So um, Mary and the widow Sarah didn't really get on. And she ended up leaving that job. And she, after some time, started a boarding school in Newington Green with her best friend, Fanny Blood. Which is the best name ever. And um, I wish you'd warned me. (laughs) Now everyone's going to hear such like a juvenile. We should redo that so I can be like professional when you say that. That's a terrible name. That is frightful. Such a great name. It is um gonna be my new like hotel alias. Like I know I'm not a celebrity, but when we check into our hotels this summer for when we're traveling, please refer to me as Fanny Blood. Just so the paparazzi won't find me. But in joke, you have to refer to me as Evelyn Noir. Okay. Yes. No <laughs> one will get this joke. <laughs> That'll be just between me and you. Because Lauren thought Evelyn Wilde was a woman. Um, (laughs) What's the next fact? (laughs) Sadly, the school didn't really work out. Fanny passed away, which was devastating to Mary. Um, Mary becomes deeply depressed, actually uses this experience as inspiration for her first novel, which is called Mary, a Fiction. Then in 1786, Mary begins work on her next book, which is Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. And she becomes a governess for an aristocratic family up in Ireland. Now, the kids loved her, but Mary didn't really get on with her employer, uh, Lady Kingsborough. So after a year, she's like, screw this. I'm moving to London. And I'm also going to support myself by being an author, which is kind of crazy for the time. And she even writes this letter to her sister, Everina, another (laughs) great name, Everina Wollstonecraft. (laughs) Um, And she says very confidently, like, listen, I'm going to be the first of a new genus. Like, just you wait. I got this. And um, she did. Like, it totally worked out. So Mary teaches herself French and German quite easily, it seems. And she starts translating uh, books for money. She also uh, meets up with this guy named Joseph Johnson. And she works as his editorial assistant, and she's also publishing reviews in his uh, periodical called Analytical Review. Whoa. I know. So she's like, she's working it. Um, Johnson is a really important figure in Mary's life. Not only does he set her up with housing and a job and publishes her work, but he also introduces her to his um, sort of weekly dinner club. So once a week, He hosts all of these important authors that he's publishing or just thinkers, you know, Mm -hmm. artists. 
And um, yeah, Mary gets to meet some of the most important minds of the day, like Thomas Paine and another guy, William Godwin, who will come up later. Um, All of these people in Johnson's set, they're all big supporters of the French Revolution. Okay. And um, that is very important because Mary also will become a big supporter of the French Revolution. And in 1790, she writes The Vindication of the Rights of Men, Uh which is a response to Edmund Burke's reflection on the revolution in France. So Burke, not a fan of the revolution. And um, this, this publication, this pamphlet that she writes becomes quite popular and actually turns her into quite the literary superstar. So that's what, that's what launches her sort of into fame. And that's interesting because when we look back to last week's episode about Frances Burney, Mm -hmm. she married a French immigrant who was fleeing the French Revolution. Yes. And then ends up stuck in France, uh, living very closely under as like part of Bonaparte's like posse, right? Her surgeons who performed the mastectomy were like his surgeons and her, right? right? So it's almost like you've got these two. Yeah, that's so interesting. Okay. I was getting a lot of um, like Mary feelings last week during our episode, um, and we can talk a little bit more about them later. But yeah, they definitely um, both had this really unique experience with the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, it has me also looking at the French Revolution because um, I think I haven't actually looked at that since like middle school or high school. Oh, that's um, a very really good thing you should watch. What? Les Mins. Oh my God. <laughs> Do you mean the original stage play version that I have on VHS with Roger Allen? No, I mean the Russell Crowe supercut. <laughs> it's just him. I made it. <laughs> well, um, I think one thing when we're thinking about Bernie, but especially when we're thinking about Wollstonecraft to sort of keep in mind um, is that the French Revolution was not like a single event. Mm-hmm. Like this really took place over many years. This was like sort of this is a long thing. Um, So it was long enough for, you know, people to be publishing and sort of talking about it at the beginning. And then later on for Mary to go, you know what, I want to see this for myself. And I'm going to just go ahead and leave that there. Step away from the mic. And I'm going to let Roberta sort of take over from here. Except I'm just going to quickly introduce Roberta. Yeah, you should do that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So when we were searching for our Wollstonecraft expert, we reached out to the Wollstonecraft Society and they sent Roberta our way. So thank you. And uh, thanks, Roberta, for coming on the show. We'll jump right in here. Um, Since I'm a newbie, you know, can you guide me and recommend some books, articles, any resources that I should be checking out? Yes, Um, I have no hesitation in recommending as the first port of call for anybody who's interested in Mary Wollstonecraft is her Wikipedia biography. Mm -hmm. And I say this um, feeling the need to explain that her biography has a little gold star discreetly at the top, which Mm -hmm. only one in a thousand Wikipedia articles receives for excellence. So it's thorough, it's up to date, it's well written, it's well illustrated, it's impeccably referenced, and it gives the general reader a very good overview of her life. 
Any books that you recommend by chance? I could recommend B. Rowlett's book, her mm-hmm. recent travelogue, um, In Search of Mary, the Mother of All Journeys. It's emphatically not an academic tome. Mm-hmm. B would be the first one to say that. It's a travel journey. And B sets off with her toddler son under her arm, just as Mary Wollstonecraft set off with her toddler daughter under her arm um, to Scandinavia. Oh, that where, sounds great. That sounds very up our alley, actually. It was pretty adventurous. Um, Mary Wollstonecraft's second most well-known book is uh, her Letters from Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, somebody read that book and said, if ever there had been a book written to make the reader fall in love with the writer, this is that book. And that person was William Godwin, and he married her. Oh, excellent. So so that's um, a, a significant book in the history of travel writing and so on. Mary Wollstonecraft was, was pushing new boundaries in, in not only in her travel, but in writing about her travels. Mm-hmm. So B. Rowlett was um, pushing a different sort of boundary a few years ago when she set off to, to go in the footsteps of Mary, first to Scandinavia and then to France, and then a third journey with a slightly older toddler um, to California. Now, of course, Wollstonecraft never made it to the United States, but she was at one stage hoping to with her American lover. They were going to go and live on the frontier and create a utopian society together. But that never really happened because he um, he got tired of the ferociously amazing woman that Wollstonecraft was and decided he'd rather um, settle for something more tame and domestic and more fool him. That's what I say. Yeah, yeah. We have a word for guys like him on this podcast, but it's not very polite. So, What's your particular word? <laughs> um, well, I would say, and I'll beep this out on the show, and sort of reading up a little bit on Gilbert, I would call him <laughs> Can you tell me about your personal journey with Wollstonecraft? So, you know, what really sparked your interest in her? Right. When I asked that question of the people who I... Um, meet along the way who are equally enthusiastic about Wollstonecraft, mm-hmm. almost all of them can tell you the moment at which she came into their life, mm-hmm. either um, through a high school or college course when, when there was some assigned reading or possibly through feminist circles or, or somehow they, they found out about her. In contrast, I honestly can't remember ever not knowing about Wollstonecraft. Mm-hmm. Um, she was just always sort of there as one of the, the figures of the world in, in my mental armory of figures of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved back to London as a young woman. I'd been born here. And I lived in lots of different parts of London, as you tend to. And then I found myself passing frequently through St. Pancras, which... Um, modern visitors to London will know as the um, railway station where the Eurostar now terminates. So in other words, it's the portal to the continent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also an old parish and there's a very old parish church there. And in that country churchyard, surrounded by central London buildings, is Mary Wollstonecraft's grave. Mm-hmm. So I found myself walking past it uh, many, many years ago. And I thought, oh, Mary Wollstonecraft, I know about her. But I only knew a little bit. So I 
took it upon myself to learn a bit more. And then 10 years ago, there was her 250th anniversary. And immediately before that, there had been a similar significant anniversary for Charles Darwin. Mm -hmm. I can't remember if it was his birth or death or the publication of uh, On the Origin of Species, but it was a big Darwin celebration everywhere. There were new biographies, there were TV series, there were um, museum exhibitions across the country, probably across the world for all I know. Darwin was culturally omnipresent. And great, you know, he, he's a significant figure and his intellectual discoveries led to a big shift in, in how we humans see ourselves in relation to the rest of the living world. And, and he's a, a significant thinker and we deserve, he deserves to be remembered and, and, and commemorate. Great. But immediately followed by Wollstonecraft's anniversary, she was culturally nowhere. There were no new biographies. There was no TV series. There were no museum exhibitions. There was no recognition of how her vindication of the rights of woman and everything that led to have transformed the human world that we live in by um, now living in a world where men and women have equal rights, at least in theory. Mm -hmm. um, and we recognize this as something that we should be striving towards. So I was really incensed at this gap between the um, recognition given to Darwin and the complete invisibility of Wollstonecraft. Hmm, I wonder why that might be. Right. But that got me on the track of um, becoming a Mary Wollstonecraft fangirl. That's amazing. I, um, I'm trying to remember when we read it over here in the States, Vindication of Rights. I, I feel like I didn't read it in high school. It was definitely college. Is that pretty standard um, for the curriculum? Uh, over in the UK as well? Well, one of the big differences between um, English education and American is a bit different in Scotland. I don't know anything about it, so I wouldn't like to comment, mm -hmm. um, is that the English education system prioritizes um, specialism quite young. Mm -hmm. So you're um, guided in from age 14, and certainly at 16, you, you then choose three subjects to study from 16 to 18. Um, so if your subjects aren't um, English literature, then you might well not come across Wollstonecraft at all. Mm -hmm. um, she isn't um, consistently taught uh, uh, to secondary school students either. So as far as I know, in, in politics and literature and history, she might mm -hmm. be touched on, but I don't believe that there's any um, requirement to um, include her. In, okay. in English curriculum. I'd be happy to be corrected on that. And I would certainly ha be happy if that changed. But she's not a, a prominent um, prominent figure. Um, and as gotcha. for reading the, the whole vindication, um, it's, it's heavy going to read 18th century prose if you're not used to it. Mm -hmm. But taking excerpts of it and using them um, in context to teach about human rights, about... Um, the, the great ferment from the Enlightenment, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, to put her life in the context of that, uh, I think can be done um, in, in ways that will uh, create interest in, in teenagers. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to wait to get to university to study her. But right. probably I would say most, most British people haven't heard of her. Um, really? Okay. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, t- 10 years ago, I used to say that if you walk down the the imaginary, typical English high street, right, and you, you have your clipboard and you stop 100 people going past and say, excuse me, uh, I'm doing a little survey. Would you mind telling me, have you ever heard of Mary Wollstonecraft? Mm-hmm. And you imagine that 100 people do stop and, and answer politely. Um, and I, I said that 10 years ago, you would get 95 say, no, sorry, love, never heard of her. You'd get four who said, oh, I have heard of her. Didn't she write Frankenstein? Okay. And you get one who had heard of her uh, and knew who she was. And now I say that after 10 years of me trying to raise her profile and, and being involved in these wonderful projects uh, about her, um, that now maybe if you stopped 100 people on the typical English high street, you'd get 90 who said, no, sorry, love, haven't mm-hmm. heard of her. You'd get uh, eight who said, oh, yeah, yeah, she wrote Frankenstein. And then you get two who knew who she was. I am trying to get like a sense of like who Wollstonecraft was as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have any, you know, favorite anecdotes about her that just maybe, maybe they help our audience get a sense of like who she was? Yes, I've got an anecdote which I tell to children mm-hmm. and it resonates with them um, when I go into schools, for example. Um, and I think it speaks to her whole life, really. She was always the little girl who said, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. And she grew up to be the woman who said, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. So when she was um, in her mid-20s, she undertook what I believe was her first sea voyage. And it was uh, the wrong season to go, but it was a family emergency. So, so she went very stormy. It took a couple of weeks to get from, uh, from London to Portugal. And on the stormy seas, this inexperienced sailor, fortunately she had a stomach of iron, she saw another ship which appeared to be in trouble. And she said to the English captain of her ship, um, excuse me, that ship seems to be in trouble. And he's like, no, 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 you don't know anything about this. And she's like, no, no, I can see there are sailors there waving at us. He's like, no, you, you're not a sailor. You're only a woman. You don't know anything about this. She said, no, look, I can see that their sails are all torn and in pieces. And those people look like they need our help. The captain said, they're French. They're our enemies. I'm not going to risk my ship and my sailors to try to rescue some enemies. And Mary Wollstonecraft said, those are human beings and they need our help. And either you're going to do everything you can to help them, or I will report you to the port authorities when we return to England. And this captain realized that he had a choice. And what could he do? He could either throw her overboard, commit murder Mm -hmm. to get rid of this mouthy woman who wouldn't shut up, or he could do what in his heart he knew was the right thing to do, which is to take effort at some risk to try to rescue these sailors. And that's what he did. And their lives were saved. And that's the kind of person that she was. She had no technical knowledge, but she knew what was right. Mm -hmm. And she insisted that other people did what was right. Mary Wollstonecraft and her circle in London were very interested in what was happening in France. They were very interested in the revolution. Um, She had written a vindication of the rights of men in response to Edmund Burke. 
and Edmund Burke had had written in response to Richard Price, who was the minister at Newington Green and a mentor and supporter of Mary Wollstonecraft from when she was in her mid twenties. Mm-hmm. So all of that circle of, of people, uh, largely Americans um, and, and those who went back and forth across the Atlantic, like Tom Paine, um, they were all part of a Mary Wollstonecraft circle through, um, through her New England Green contacts and also through her publisher, uh, Joseph Johnson down in the city, city of London by St. Paul's Cathedral. So, they were very aware, that whole circle was very, very aware of, of the hopes of the future as it was then um, at the beginning of the French Revolution. And she wanted to go. She wanted to see it for herself. She wanted to go with London friends and that didn't work out. And so she decided to go alone, which is kind of a risky thing to set off to do. It's really um, crazy. Really, yeah. She didn't really speak French mm-hmm. um, oh my god I know uh, she, she read French um, with a dictionary and a grammar to hand um, but she she wasn't fluent in speaking by any means um, anyway she she decided to go and she she went just at the point when everybody who could was getting out right okay um, she she arrived in the same week when, when people were leaving and shortly after she arrived from from the top um, the the floor of the house where she was staying, she saw the king um, in a, in a the back of a, a cart being being taken um, between uh, prison and um, wherever he he was being taken. You know, so it was a very hot time. It was a very um, boiling over sort of time in Paris. Mm-hmm. Everybody was in a ferment, and there were a lot of Americans there. Um, and of course, the Americans and the French were very close at that time, politically. Mm-hmm. And then the French and the British um, became at war with one another, which meant that all British citizens were persona non grata, that they were not safe. They, they either had to leave or, or risk arrest. And the way that Mary Wollstonecraft got around this is by... Um, she had fallen in love with with Gilbert Imlay, one of the Americans there, and and he with her. I mean, who wouldn't fall in love with her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he took her to the American embassy and registered her there as his wife, which meant under the laws of the time that she became an American citizen and therefore was under the protection of the American embassy and, and was not going to be treated um, by the French authorities as one of those suspicious British citizens anymore. So she was able to stay. And she stayed and she became pregnant by Gilbert Imlay. He he, he wasn't sure what to do. He wanted to support her, but he didn't want to be tied down. She thought mm-hmm. that they had entered into a spiritual marriage. She thought mm-hmm. that this was the real thing. Um, they introduced each other in, 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 in company. They were known as Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Imlay. They um, presented themselves as a married couple. Mm-hmm. And Virginia Woolf said much later that Gilbert Imlay thought he was fishing for tiddlers and caught a dolphin. Okay. 
that he, you know, that he didn't know what he got involved with. He didn't know. Right. <laughs> and that the that Mary Wollstonecraft is a much bigger character than he had ever bargained with. He thought he was just having a dalliance. Mm-hmm. Um, but she never thought that. She she thought that this was going to be the real thing. And 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 as I said, that wanted to go off to they were making plans to go to the United States onto the frontier and, and build a utopian community with, with uh, his friends and, and so on. But that never happened. Um, what's the difference between Mary Wollstonecraft and Simone de Beauvoir? Ooh, tell me. A good diaphragm. <laughs> Contraception. Much needed. Much yeah, needed. There was no access to anything okay. like that then. A reliable contraception. So, so she, so she was pregnant in in a war, a situation of civil war, mm-hmm. and uh, she uh, bore the child. She had a, uh, she found a French midwife and and had a healthy pregnancy and a healthy delivery. But by that point, Gilbert Imlay had gone off on on his travels, you know, scouting around for, um, well, silver mainly. He was buying in, from the French aristocrats and trying to make money. Um, and so she had the baby, he, he visited, he, he wrote letters and so on, but he was growing more and more distant. And essentially she was, she was left on her own, um, trying to cope in a foreign country with a newborn baby in the coldest winter ever, and everything froze over and you couldn't get food into the cities because all the roots were frozen over. It it was dreadful situation, Mm -hmm. but she was a very strong woman and she, she made, she made it work. What was she doing um, for money at this time? Well, um, that's a very good question. Um, I think she was sort of protected um, in various ways. I don't know the details of that. I wouldn't want to mm-hmm. wouldn't want to give you the wrong information. Oh, sure. But, um, she had she had a lot of friends, and they were able to sort of forward money to her, as it were, because mm-hmm. she was um, writing. I mean, she had published works, and so she had right. money from her publisher back home. But also she was writing the history uh, of the French Revolution. She was writing the first history in English while it was going on. Mm-hmm. And she smuggled the manuscript out in a cart under a, a load of straw. And if that manuscript had been discovered at the, the, the city gates of Paris... She would have been arrested. Right. We all know what happened to people who were arrested under those circumstances. Right. She was she was bold, you know. She yes, she really that, was. Out and get it back to England and get it published. Yeah. Um, she, she was a bold character. Um, can you tell me a little bit about her going to Scandinavia and the reason for that? Yeah. Okay. So uh, she'd done her couple of years in in Paris and she'd got a baby, and her lover had gone back to England. So she decided to um, to leave. Uh, France was, was her time there. She'd had enough. So she went back to London to try to find Gilbert Imlay. Mm-hmm. And she found him, and he was shacked up with an actress. Oh. Yeah, a woman of the stage. So she wasn't too thrilled with that. But... Um, The long and the short of it is that he had this cargo of silver. I mentioned the silver that he was trading for. Now, this is mm-hmm. 
think of all the, the candelabra and all the, the cutlery of the French aristocracy. They mm. had been selling this stuff off to stay one step ahead of the guillotine and, and pay the bribes to the officials so that they could escape somehow. Mm. And who had they been selling that silver to? Well, uh, American. Uh, American um, gamblers, if you like, mm. um, of whom Gilbert Imlay was one. So he'd got quite a, a, a cargo of silver, which he wanted to um, to bring back to trade. But he couldn't, um, there was an embargo between uh, Britain and France. So the silver had to go by a more circuitous route. Mm -hmm. And it had gone out through um, ships uh, from the Hanseatic ports, Hamburg and, and so on. And the ship, I mean, it's a, so you can imagine a sort of a crate or two. I don't know exactly how much, but a small mm -hmm. quantity of silver is worth a great deal of money. Right. So that could be packed into a few trunks or crates or what have you. And then the rest of the ship's cargo is going to be, you know, turnips or coal or whatever else it is, right? That's the vast mm -hmm. bulk of the cargo, timber, what, what grain actually is what they mostly did in the Hanseatic ports. So the, the actual silver would be a small part of the whole ship. It could be disguised. It could be concealed. So the ship sets out um, and, and makes its stops around the small ports of uh, Sweden and Norway, and then it disappears. And the ship never reaches its destination. So Gilbert Imlay is, is down, all his silver, it's all gone, gone missing. So he uh, asks Mary Wollstonecraft if she would mind go, to go looking for his missing silver treasure ship. And she's like, okay, I'll go. I'll go and oh have an adventure and see if I can find your missing silver treasure. So she sets off with her baby under her arm. She did have a, a maidservant as well, Marguerite, mm -hmm. um, displaced by the French Revolution, no doubt. And she uh, went from England to um, Hamburg and then set off from there. Now, it, it's kind of logical when you think about it that every ship leaving a port will um, leave a record with the harbour master of where it's heading to. Mm -hmm. So you can go to a port and request to see where that ship was heading to on such and such a date. You know how many days away it is to get to the next port. You go to the next port and you say, did mm -hmm. this ship arrive on, in, on or around this date? Yes. How many days did it spend here? Where did it go off to next? And you can kind of follow the chain that way. So that's what mm -hmm. she did, sort of port hopping um, around uh, she left the the baby and the maid behind, so she went off on her own to through through the Scandinavian um, villages and towns uh, around the coast, and she never found the the treasure ship. It, oh it, no! It, it, yeah, it's a, a genuine historical mystery, um, but she had quite a time um, on this adventure. It was midsummer, so you can imagine this almost endless daylight of the mm -hmm. north. And she'd never been anywhere like this that was this dramatic in its scenery. She was used to England, which is soft and green and gentle. And OK, you know, Yorkshire is a bit more rugged, but still nothing mm -hmm. like the Scandinavian mountains and waterfalls and, and wild nature. So she really became enamored of this. And all of these letters that she wrote, these letters from Scandinavia, each one was different. So some of them are sort of sociological exposés. Some of them are um, almost um, travel guides. So the, you know, the food in this inn is awful and it costs too much. Mm -hmm. um, 
a lot of them are about the people themselves and their manner of living and and um, whether you can tell the difference between um, a free people and one who are ruled by a despot, by how the average peasant treats the average passing traveller and so on. Mm-hmm. But she also wrote these love letters, essentially. And she never um, titled them. You know, she didn't say, dear Gilbert, my dearest Gilbert. But everybody who read them knew that she was writing to him. Right? Mm-hmm. He was the one she was missing. He was the one her heart turned towards. And in this um, great time alone, she had time to think and reflect and see these very different landscapes, these different people. And it gave her a bit of space in her life, I think. Um, She was always a religious person not in the forms of religion, but in the sense that she um, created her own relationship with the divine. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a free thinker in the original meaning of the term, not an atheist, but one who thought things through for herself. And so she was able to um, lie on the grass uh, in the Scandinavian semi-wilderness and, and feel the divine spirit of of nature um and that was good for her that was good for her but then she had to come back um having completed the quest uh, well completed it by non-completion mm-hmm. um come back to the workaday world and made her way back um picking up her baby and, and the maid servant and, and coming back to london essentially with empty hands right um, to say you know I've, I've done my best but there's no sign of it and again, she had hoped that um, she could reconcile with Gilbert Imlay, the father of her child. Um, but he was like, okay, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> yeah. And so then she had to sort of like start again. Well, she um, she tried to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, she went to Putney Bridge, walked up and down in the rain to make sure her clothes were well sodden and jumped off the bridge. And she was rescued Now, most um, of the biographies will allow you to believe that it was by some haphazard Mm passers-by. And that's not the case, actually. She was rescued by boatmen, you know, those who spend their time on the river, not surprisingly. Mm -hmm. But they had been trained in the most recent and scientific life-saving techniques. So just as nowadays, if you um, collapse on the street, um, it's your good fortune if there's an automatic defibrillator within reach and somebody who has had the basic training and how to use it, right. somebody who knows CPR, somebody who, who you know, has first aid training. Um, it was her good fortune to be um, rescued by people who knew what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they did what they needed to do and they um, made sure that she didn't die. Mm-hmm. So she came back from that attempt, and at this point, she really decided to reconcile herself to life and to find a new way forward. And that's what she did. She washed that man right out of her hair (laughs) and turned her face forward. She had a a lovely baby, um, and she had a a lovely publisher as well. She had a a good reputation as a writer. There was a... um, 
a readership for her works. Mm -hmm. So she decided that that's what she would do. She had lots of friends in London and she um, began afresh. And one of her friends um, put her in touch with um, an acquaintance, uh, arranged a little dinner party for the two of them. And that is where William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft became reacquainted with each other. And as they said, friendship ripened into love. Oh, because when they first met, they didn't care for each other, correct? Correct. Um, they shared the same publisher, mm-hmm. Joseph Johnson down in the city. And he had um, an open table. I'm not sure if this was every night, but certainly once a week, he'd invite all his authors around and, and they'd all eat uh, and drink and discuss together. Mm-hmm. And one um, one night, Tom Paine was going to be there, passing through London. And Godwin went um, because he knew that Tom Paine would be there. And he, he said later, I went wanting to hear Paine. I heard too little of Paine and too much of Wollstonecraft. <laughs> because she was there and she wanted to discuss matters with, with Paine and with the others. So he was, um, yeah, he, he was not a fan of hers to start with, and she wasn't very much impressed with him either. But a few years later, they um, they managed to see a different side of each other. Yeah, they had a when Harry met Sally sort of relationship. Are there any sort of like common misconceptions that you find yourself sort of battling or you know coming up against uh, with regards to Mary or with vindication? Yes. Um, I think the most, well, there are probably two widely spread misconceptions, aside from didn't she write Frankenstein? No. Right. Um, But for those who know who she was, there's an assumption that she was um, dropped completely and unknown until second wave feminism rediscovered her in the late 60s, 70s. Okay. And actually, that's not true. I think it's a little bit like every generation thinks it has invented sex. Every Mm -hmm. generation thinks it has discovered Mary Wollstonecraft. And in fact, she's never been unknown. She's never been undiscoverable. Now, immediately after her death, she did become persona non grata, and the Victorians... um, quite prudish um they they dropped her um from from polite discourse as it were but she wasn't um unknown to the intellectuals of the time i mean george Eliot wrote about her wrote an essay Mm -hmm. about wollstonecraft she was always known to the people who um had the ideas and and who shaped society her her work was read and reread by the victorian prime minister who was um designing the um, state-funded school system for England, for example. So, so she was never um, Wollstonecraft was never forgotten. And I think it's it's kind of annoying that that people now think they've just discovered her and she's just a new newly uh, found. She isn't. She's always mm-hmm. been. Gotcha. Um, and the other thing, mm, let's see, what else is there that's particularly? Well, with the vindication, I think the, the vindication of the rights of women was the second one, of course, because the vindication of the rights of men came first. Mm-hmm. I find that's a useful um, 
counterbalance for those who haven't heard nothing about her except that she's a feminist. Mm-hmm. Of course, the word feminist didn't exist then. It wasn't available to her to self-describe in that way. But um, I have no problem with thinking of her as the mother of English feminism, uh, English language feminism, mm-hmm. proto-feminist, whatever you want to call it. And it's absolutely true that she was. But Mary Wollstonecraft was so many other things too. Um, she was an educator and an educationalist. She was an educational theorist. Um, she was a civil rights activist. Uh, she she spoke up for breastfeeding when that was not a popular thing for middle-class women to do. It was viewed as too animalistic. And she's like, no, no, it isn't. It's, this is normal. This is what it means. Um, she, uh, she had so many strings to her bow. I, I mentioned that the history of the French Revolution that she wrote while it was going on, the journalism. She was a war correspondent, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the second most known book, The Letters from Scandinavia, for those who study these things, they say it was groundbreaking in the history of travel writing. You know, she, she found a new way to write about travel. Mm-hmm. So she did many, many things that were not only um, she's a feminist, so yeah, I, I think I'd I'd um, expand her um, her persona in that way, her memory. Yeah. And you're doing a million projects. It sounds like to actually just do just that. So can you break down what are all the projects that you're involved with? Okay. Um, <laughs> that there is a lot going on. Um, not least because her 260th birthday is coming up um, next month. Um, mm-hmm. April the 27th, Saturday. It's always nice when your birthday falls on a Saturday, isn't Perfect. it? Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's going to be a big celebration for her birthday mm-hmm. um, in London, and it's going to be held at St. Pancras Old Church, which is where she was married and buried the first time. Always mm-hmm. a good pub quiz question. Where is Mary Wollstonecraft buried? Ah, do you mean is buried or was buried? Yeah. Oh, perfect. She, she perfect. Dug up and moved. Anyway, so yeah, the um, so there's going to be a birthday celebration there, and I'm going to be leading uh, a walk before the day begins and 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 towards its end as well through the neighborhoods that she knew, or some of the neighborhoods that she knew in London. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just that's just one day, of course, and we're going to there's panels of scholars and activists and artists speaking about their um, their work and and uh, what Wollstonecraft means nowadays and i'm particularly interested in the panel on on um what do we not yet know about mary wollstonecraft what remains Mm -hmm. to be discovered um anyway in terms of um serious projects that are underway um the the main two are the mary on the green campaign which is aiming to raise the world's first memorial sculpture to mary wollstonecraft and when i tell people this, and particularly I find um, Americans know Wollstonecraft better than the English do. It's not surprising that that, that, that pioneering figures are, are better recognized outside their own country in many cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and many Americans in particular are astonished or, or almost disbelieving that there is no place of pilgrimage for Wollstonecraft anywhere in the world. And it's true, mm-hmm. there isn't. We like um, statues over here. We're into that. Exactly. Well, I've been into that too. And um, there's uh, th- there are many places that Wollstonecraft 
could legitimately be remembered. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the place where she was born, the place where she died, the place where she wrote the vindication, et cetera, et cetera. And those are just London places. There are plenty of places outside London as well. But the location where the statue is going to be is Newington Green. So the campaign is called Mary on the Green because that's easy to spell. Wollstonecraft mm -hmm. is impossible to spell. Even the second president of the United States misspelled her name. It's no, no sin or shame. No mm -hmm. shame to misspell a, a tricky name like that. And Newington is not easy to remember if you don't know it. it it's, it's not a, a famous place unless you've been there. Mm -hmm. But this is the village that she lived in as a young school teacher, um, where she met the people who changed her life and who introduced her to the publisher and said, you have a book in you. Let me help you get it out there. Mm -hmm. So it's the good neighbors of Newington Green who have decided that their local park is going to be the site of the world's first statue. So that project is one that um, I've been assisting with for many years now. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen very soon. Um, if you go to the website, Mary on the Green, you will find um, a donate here button on it. And all donations are very uh, welcome. Very, very welcome. And we are back. Now, Lauren, I have one mm. question for you. Oh, what? What word did you beep out? <laughs> I think you can imagine what it was. It's one that we use quite a bit. Was it, it was... Pissman? <laughs> <laughs> that's Bringing like a deep back. cut to like Bringing season... it back. Was that season one? Might have been, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. You sent me a, a link to an article this week. Mm -hmm. I um, did. About, and it's called How a Husband's Loving Biography Ruined His Wife's Reputation, which I think yeah. I thought like the article, it touches on a lot of things that we talk about, right? So the responsibility mm -hmm. that people have when they write biographies. But like, what was it about um, the Mary Wollstonecraft situation that you think is so problematic? Well, it was really funny. I read that article and immediately just started thinking about Elizabeth Gaskell. So, um, Mary Wollstonecraft died at 38, something we didn't cover in the interview. Um, her death is really upsetting to read about. Mm -hmm. um, she died uh, giving birth to Mary Shelley. And I think a lot of times we talk um, about women dying in childbirth. It's almost like it's on them. Does that make sense? Or mm -hmm. am I just like really, I'm, I might be super sensitive to this as someone who almost died in childbirth. But what happened with that situation was that um, the doctor didn't wash his hands, y'all. Right. So she got an infection. She got an infection. And that's how she died. And um, one of the things that made me think about Frances Burney was that uh, she was drunk on wine. Well, they just kept giving her wine mm -hmm. during the entire process. Um, and also, like, how strong she was to sort of, like, stay, like, with it and together through the entire thing. Um, the placenta was still... Uh, stuck so the doctor was like re removing it by hand and not washing his hands and then yeah infection then death it's a horrible way to go it's really terrible and uh william godwin was devastated he was yeah. madly in love with his wife um he was he was into her not only as a person but as an author he was really proud of her accomplishments and so after she passed he was like i'm going to 
preserve her memory for the ages. I'm going to write the bio of all bios. And um, he decided to go the opposite way of Elizabeth Gaskell, right? So Elizabeth is like, I'm going to help out my friend's reputation. So there's certain things I'm going to have to massage. There's Mm -hmm. certain things that I'm going to have to omit. Uh, But William Godwin goes the opposite route. And he's like, no, wait, I'm going to just tell you guys everything. And he does go to like her (laughs) ex-boyfriends and basically is like, hey, can you give me like all of your correspondence? Because I'm going to publish it for a bio. And like to her brothers and sisters as well. Like, oh, hey, do you have a correspondence for this bio? And in fact, um, I think it's Everina actually who comes down on him like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, this is... This is way too this much. This is a bad idea. Yeah. This is a bad idea. And um, he actually kind of shakes it off like, oh, well, you're just jealous because your sister was so fabulous. The bio comes out and it does really destroy Wollstonecraft's reputation for like 100 years. It's not great. Um, and that is because he tells everything. Her suicide attempts, her child out of wedlock. Um, and the public doesn't take it so well, right? Like she's already has this radical reputation because the radical thing that she says is, hey, we should be educating women. They can't handle the fact that she has a daughter out of wedlock. So so he's saying all of this stuff because he's like, she is the most interesting and best and most fantastic woman. People deserve to know every minute detail about her. Like nothing can be forgotten. Yes. We have to preserve her. But is not considering a woman's place in society. As he does it, right. And then it has these devastating consequences. If you want to read the article, uh, it's on the Lit Hub. So just search how husband's love and biography ruined his wife's reputation. Indeed. And I will post that um, in our Facebook group and on Twitter as well. So now if you want to do some further reading and uh, read up on Mary Wollstonecraft, I suggest you, of course, check out Romantic Outlaws by Charlotte Gordon, but also uh, The Life and Death of Mary Wollstonecraft by Claire Tomalin. That name is probably familiar to you guys as she has written about tons of people, including someone named Jane Austen. Who's and, she? Uh, yeah, no no idea. And uh, a really good uh, Charles Dickens bio as well. You love Charles Dickens. Uh, <laughs> don't get Claire Tomlin confused with Claire Harmon, who wrote the Francis Burney and Charlotte Bronte biographies. Different. Yes. Different Claire's. Different Claire's. I got them confused, but don't you guys do it. Another book that I'm going to recommend is the um, Letters Written in a Short Residence in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. That's a title. That's quite a title. By Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, That is her travelogue that she wrote when she was searching for lost silver. (laughs) Come on. A little fascinating. Um, I've read a little bit, uh, really lovely, just a- actually like I was really taken by uh, wow. some of these letters and I really would like to read a travelogue. So I actually might suggest that goes on Yeah. Um, for the vote for what we're going to read next year. So I like that. Yeah, yeah. that'd be a good one. And um, other places to go if you would like to learn more about Mary, um, I definitely suggest that you connect with the Wollstonecraft Society on Twitter. You can find them at T-H-E-W-O-L-L-S-O-C or at Mary on the Green. That's easier to remember. And uh, MaryOnTheGreen.org is their website where you can help contribute to, um, to fundraise for the statue. 
And um, they are also hosting a celebration of Mary Wollstonecraft on her birthday, which is uh, Saturday, the 27th of April from nine to five. I'm going to put more information about that on our social media. And um, Hannah, where can the people find that on the Internet? What Hannah, what's the Internet? Well, Lauren, I can't answer hmm. that question. <laughs> nope. <laughs> you never do. I never do. Maybe one day I will answer it. Uh, but I can tell you that you can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at bonnets at dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can find us on Facebook by searching bonnets at dawn. Sounds like a plan. And just a reminder, guys, we are on Spotify. So you can listen to us there if that's convenient for you. If not, continue on iTunes. Yeah, but if you're continuing on iTunes, you should throw us a review. Thank you. Yes, thank you. (laughs) 